Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Uh, Perry Marshall here with Eric Kalker. Eric is a psychologist in Canada, and he and I have been connecting during the last year or so talking about cancer, and uh, he has a very particular interest in the relationship between what's going on in your head and what's going on in your body and the connection between stress and therapy and ourselves and how we heal ourselves. I think the beginning of this was in a cancer and evolution Q&A session that I was hosting, which Eric can give you his perspective on that. But there is a very interesting relationship between stresses that happen in life and adverse childhood events, things of that nature, and people's health later on in life. So, Eric, welcome. Thank you very much, Perry. Great to be here. So, let's talk about this. Um, How did you become interested in this and start seeing these connections, uh, which you don't typically hear about this in most news channels or books or conversations, but how did that happen? Okay. Well, like so many people, including you listening to this, my family was touched by cancer. My mom died when I was 16 years old. She was a very loving woman, very strong. And at the time I just thought, you know, it's just a genetic mutation and it spiraled out of control. And I just had an enormous amount of grief, but I just sort of tried to carry on with life. And it was many years later, when I was working as a psychologist, I became aware of some research. And researchers asked people, what sort of adversities, what sort of very painful things happened to them in their childhood? So they asked whether they were physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, physically or emotionally neglected, if they lost a parent before the age of 18, uh, there was violence between the parents, a parent with a serious mental disorder, substance abuse in the home, and a family member who was incarcerated. Mm. Now, these aren't the only childhood adversities. There's other ones like being bullied in school, being seriously rejected by your peers, but these are the 10 most commonly researched. And I started digging into it, and I found, to my complete astonishment, that people who had four of these adverse childhood experiences, they had more than double the risk of cancer. And I thought, I'm reading this, and I go, oh, my gosh, this isn't a statistic. This is my family. You know, I had a similar realization. It wasn't from reading a psychological study, but probably 10 years ago, go, hey, wait a minute. So my dad finds out he's got cancer when he's 41. And what had been going on in his life prior to that? Uh, His wife had gone bipolar. Our family was a complete tilt-a-whirl of chaos for about a year and a half. Then 
She got diagnosed by a psychiatrist. Then he got demoted from his job at a church because they didn't believe in all of that. And then he had to go defend himself. And he had a very, very, very hard road for while that was going on because it was like basically a shameful, humiliating situation, you know, and then he got some of it straightened out and then he's got blood in his urine and he's off getting his kidney taken out because he's got cancer. And like maybe, I don't know, again, 10 years ago, hey, you know, maybe like some of that stuff might have had a causal effect. Like to me, it's almost common sense. But what I hadn't realized was the extent to which this has already been documented and people have been connecting the dots. And you tend to hear cancer conversations in these very segmented, well, you know, we're going to do this radiation treatment. And so why don't you start putting together the puzzle pieces about this? Sure. And you know, people with severe PTSD, it doubles their risk of cancer. Your dad, you know, his wife, her emotions were fluctuating wildly. He was profoundly shamed and rejected by the church. So the whole social network was ripped apart. Mm-hmm. Concern about you and your brother, right? So all these enormous stressors were piling into him. And what happens is when people are being strongly stressed, their fight or flight system gears up. So it releases adrenaline and cortisol and because you're stressed and these hormones ready your body to either fight the threat and kill it or to flee from it. And so, of course, the cortisol and the adrenaline, they just get your muscles super revved up and your mitochondria is just, you know, pumping out energy, converting glucose into ATP. And like any other power cell, when that power cell is chugging away, it's emitting noxious stuff right? In this case, reactive oxygen species like hydroxyl ions. And these reactive oxygen species, they just break everything in sight. And so they break water, they break protein, they break DNA. So people who are chronically in fight or flight, their DNA is getting broken apart because they're flooded with so much cortisol and adrenaline. And you start breaking apart DNA and bad things happen. And they actually did one study of people who had experienced war and torture in Germany. And they just take blood samples from these refugees and they analyze it. And they go, oh, my gosh, the breakage in their DNA is as bad as people have been exposed to an atomic bomb. So I would like you to just repeat that in case people didn't catch it the first time. Syrian refugees from Germany continue. And the German psychologists, they take blood samples, they look at it, they analyze the DNA breakage. There's as much DNA breakage as people exposed to an atomic bomb. Right. So one would, you know, a person who has a little bit of science education would assume, well, Okay, atomic bombs have protons banging into DNA molecules and they're breaking them. That doesn't have anything to do with your brother getting shot or losing touch with your sister or, you know, having your relatives die or having your neighborhood bombed. And what they're finding out is the body's response to this kind of trauma is 
sh- literally shredding their DNA. Absolutely. Because when you're in extreme fight or flight and you're that way year after year because you got PTSD, your system is soaked in adrenaline and cortisol. Your muscles are revving up and cortisol does more than just rev up the power plant and produce a reactive oxygen species. It also suppresses the immune system. So anything bad going on in your body, the immune system isn't there to fight it off. So, you know, if a little cancer tumor starts growing, the immune system isn't as healthy to deal with it. So there's a whole cascade of effects that start rippling in from that point. Okay. So you're a psychologist. You start dialing into the cancer and evolution stuff that I've been doing. And this got you thinking. So Tell us where that started to go. Okay. So the impact is really big. I mean, the cancer researchers figure about 5% of cancers are due to genetic mutations. And the amount of cancer due to childhood adversity and trauma is more than double that. And then you add in the people with severe PTSD and doubling their risk of cancer, people who experience strong grief, their risk of cancer goes up. So the issue is really big. And I start looking a lot more deeply into this and going, okay, if one of the paths to cancer, there's multiple paths to cancer, uh, but if one of the paths to cancer is serious psychological stress, then what happens Uh, How deep does it go? And one of the fundamental insights I realized was relationship wires biology, right? So consider my mother. She lost her mother when she was five years old. So loss of an enormously important relationship. Uh, And then her father gets angry. So that relationship is very threatening, right? She goes into fight or flight mode. Then the Germans invade Holland. Okay, now she's in a culture that's been profoundly shaken. Then her brother dies in the house. So fear, grief, rage, all these negative relationships, all the trauma, fear, loss, that was wiring biology. And in this case, it was ripping apart her DNA. And I thought, well, what if you do the reverse? What if you were able to have people exposed to relationships that were healthy, would that start to wire biology back in a direction that actually was healthy? So do I correctly remember that going back to the Syrian refugees, that you found there was actually a remedy for that damage? Yeah. Why don't you talk about that? Sure. So the psychologists, they split the refugees into two groups and they said to one group, hey, good news, we're going to treat you with psychotherapy right away. And the other group of refugees, they said, ah, sorry, guys, you've got to wait. And so one group of refugees, they received psychotherapy for their PTSD and their symptoms of PTSD really tapered down, right? They weren't having the nightmares. They weren't having the startle response. They weren't as irritable. Psychologically, they're doing a whole pile better four months later. Uh, Meanwhile, the refugees who got no treatment, they were just as bad as ever. And all the nightmares, all the fight or flight, 
And then they looked at the blood. Mm -hmm. And the refugees who got psychotherapy, their blood is now as healthy as people who had never been exposed to trauma. Whereas the poor people had to wait, they had just as much damage in their DNA as they did at the beginning of the study. And so that showed that psychotherapy relationship oriented to heal the psychological injury of all this trauma, it actually helped the body to repair itself and to help the DNA become as healthy as ever. So this ties in very well with all of what I've learned from the evolution side, where the common perception and belief is that, well, we got our genes and the genes build the cells and then the cells go do what the cells are going to do. And it's like this one way thing. And it turns out, no, actually the genome is a read, write. It's like a hard drive. Uh, information gets pulled off of it. Information gets written back into it. It is actually changing at a considerable pace and that it's an organ of the cell. It's not just some blueprint from which things get built. And so if you understand that, uh, and then like, so cells have DNA repair mechanisms that somehow or another, the psychotherapy and the relational health is sending instructions to the cells to go repair damage and that the damage can actually be undone because we're not just like, robotic results of, our, of whatever's in our genes, right? So what, what ends up happening is this information is always empowering. It's like, well, epigenetics has shown us what you eat, how you exercise, your environment, all of that affects what's going on with you genetically. And now what Eric Kelker is saying is, well, guess what? Your social environment and your relationships and even, um, you know, finding yourself a good therapist is good for your genes, good for your DNA, and good for stopping cancer. Like, aren't you suggesting that it may be possible to head off 10 or 15% of cancer just by deliberately pursuing a more healthy social and mental, emotional environment? Well, that's what the research says, right? Because when they crunch the numbers and they do the population attributable risk fraction, you know, and all these $10 words, they go, by golly, if everybody grew up in an emotionally healthy home, roughly 10% or more of cancers simply wouldn't happen. And, you know, if people grew up with stable, healthy connections with their parents, if they went to schools where they were, you know, treated respectfully rather than bullied, you know, then their bodies wouldn't be in fight or flight mode all the time. The cortisol wouldn't be, you know, stressing their cells and causing all these reactive oxygen species. And the incidence of cancer would drop significantly, like $210 billion less just in the U.S. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a well over $100 billion a year industry in the U.S. Right. Okay. So now these Syrian refugees, this wasn't like some high-end exotic thing they were doing. Like this was relatively straightforward psychotherapy. 
Did do you know anything about what they were actually doing? Yeah, 12 sessions. 12 sessions of psychotherapy for a Syrian refugee. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So these people were extremely distressed. Like they had really bad PTSD. And, you know, just resolving the PTSD. Now, you know, each person makes varying amounts of progress. Sure. And so that was okay. The We see that psychotherapy uh, helps with repairing the DNA. But now one of the other questions that I was very interested in, does psychotherapy have an impact on cancer? Yeah. Because remember, relationships wire biology. Yes. So how big is the influence of positive relationships on rewiring biology? And so we saw the first example where the Syrian refugees, their DNA became as healthy as possible. And now there's been multiple studies, right? So they take people who've had multiple traumas in childhood, they treat them with psychotherapy, and lo and behold, there's methylation on the monoamine oxidase gene, and that methylation changes, right? And they analyze the blood and they go, oh, the people that respond to psychotherapy, the people that have a positive outcome from psychotherapy, the DNA, the methylation is changing across multiple sites in the genome. And so psychotherapy helps with methylation. It even helps rewire the brain. So people that have had PTSD, it really alters the size of the hippocampus mm. because they're in fight or flight mode and the hippocampus is encoding all these traumatic memories. And as psychotherapy proceeds, if they're receiving effective psychotherapy, the size of the hippocampus actually changes. And so we see that it goes from DNA to methylation, to brain structure, to organ, you know, the size of the brain is changing. And then when we look more specifically at how does this kind of ripple into cancer, one of the most astonishing results is that the effect size for chemotherapy, the amount of lifespan that chemotherapy adds to your life is smaller than the effect size for marriage. So take that apart and explain, just explain as plain English as you can what that really is saying. Okay. So if you have cancer and you're single and you get psychotherapy, let's say it adds five months to your life. If you're married and you have cancer and you don't get any psychotherapy, just being married adds, you know, six months to your life. So being married has a larger positive impact on your cancer survival than chemotherapy. So a married person who gets chemotherapy, maybe they would get 11 months instead of five. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Please yeah. speaking. Yeah. Now, I'm certainly not saying don't take chemotherapy. <laughs> so that's a total. No, we're, we're not prescribing any of that today. We're not interested in that conversation. That's, yeah. that's a whole other discussion. Exactly. Right? But the point I want to make is being married has more of a positive impact on your lifespan after diagnosis with cancer than chemotherapy. And that's just the variable of married versus single. Okay. It's not even about the variable of very happily married versus, you know, half decent marriage. 
It's just people that are married, it's got a more positive impact on their lifespan than if they get chemotherapy or not. And so what are some other ingredients that have similar effects on longevity? Okay. Yeah. And so if you give people who've been diagnosed with cancer, if you give them psychotherapy, yes, it does increase their lifespan, especially if they're single. Okay. Because now uh, they have a connection with a therapist who's caring and they can talk about their emotions and, you know, they have that sense of connection with another person and in a marriage that already exists. And also if certain types of psychotherapy seem to be a little better than others on cancer survival. But the fascinating thing is that psychotherapy does have a positive impact on cancer survival. It's not the be all end all, but relationship wires biology. So is anybody talking about this or is it buried in libraries somewhere? Yes. And that's what I'm finding. Like, Perry, I did a PhD and I didn't learn this stuff. Every year I get all the continuing education credits. I didn't learn this stuff. I, you had to go hunt this down somewhere. Yes. Now, how did you come to go looking for it in the first place? Somebody mentioned it and I thought, this is amazing. You know, I never heard this stuff. And I just started digging deeper and deeper and I discovered, you know, there's huge amounts of research on the link between trauma and neglect in childhood and negative health outcomes. It's not just cancer, it's heart disease, it's COPD, it is liver disease. So I started digging deeper and deeper into this and I realized, wow, you know, uh, these psychological injuries have a bigger impact on chronic diseases than genetics do. (laughs) Well, it's easy for a person to believe if they have a holistic view of a human being. And it doesn't make any sense if you have a very mechanistic, we are controlled by our genes view of a human being, right? It's almost like, well, how do you see the world how do you believe the world is constructed in the first place? Right. Okay. So what is being done or ought to be done in your opinion? Like how should we be adjusting the world to accommodate this information? There's several layers. The first one is just to tell the public, right? People are out there wandering around thinking, oh, cancer is bad genetics. And they don't know that, wait a minute, maybe you have these psychological injuries and you don't even know about it. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you got a serious wound on your neck or four of them. Yeah. You don't know. My mother didn't know that her psychological injuries would impact her health. And so many people, they, they just don't know. And so I think that communicating to people, you know, maybe you have a psychological injury or four of them or eight of them. I've met people who have all 10 repeatedly 
and their health is terrible. And so, you know, the first is just to start communicating it so that the public goes, wow, I didn't know that these psychological injuries would impact my health. You know, I thought, oh, it's genetics, but now it is relationship wires biology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that re might really motivate people to go, maybe you should start addressing these psychological wounds with a helpful psychotherapist and heal them. And it's so interesting. I had a client recently and uh, absolutely fascinating person. They come in and they say, I made a major breakthrough in terms of forgiving somebody. This is after years of therapy. And they said, my hair has started to grow back. Mm. I've changed prescription in my glasses. My eyes are functioning better. Mm -hmm. I've lost 20 pounds. I've been able to drop one of my medications because I just don't need it anymore. My blood pressure has dropped. And so going through psychotherapy resulted in literally a whole cascade of positive physical changes as well as emotional changes. So Eric, I, I have this observation. Let's say you're not getting along with your wife too well at the moment. And if you go to your fitness trainer, they could notice something's off with Eric today, right? If you go to your therapist, the therapist could notice something's off with Eric today. If you go to your, your acupuncturist, he could notice. If you go have a beer with your buddy, he could know. Like any one of these people from within their discipline, in other words, what I'm trying to say, like your chiropractor works on your back and he's like, like one time my chiropractor said to me, I was going through some stuff, by the way. And he goes, boy, your eliminative system is just really on overdrive today. Like is something going on? I'm like, oh yeah, something's going on. I don't even want to get into it with you. But yes, right. Any one of these people through the lens with which they see the world, which you know, a chiropractor is very different from a fitness trainer, which is very different from a therapist, but they can all see it. And what I think is also interesting is all of them probably have something they can do to break the cycle, right? So any one of them, it's like, hey, you know what? Chiropractors, like, let's work out those tight muscles down there and you'll probably like start feeling a little differently about that argument you had right or the fitness guys like well you you go do a good workout together and you're like boy that just doesn't bother me as much as it did before I, I think I can go home and we can straighten this out and any one of those people can probably make a difference potentially and it's because human beings are it's like you don't have to fix the whole system you need to fix part of the system or enough of the system to get it like headed back in the right direction. I think, well, first of all, does that coincide with your experience? Yeah, I don't want to rule any discipline out, right? And I if I've got a client who's single, I will recommend they go get massage therapy because right. physical touch is healing. Mm, yeah. And it's so fascinating. As you mentioned these different disciplines, one thing just popped in my mind. 
your physician doesn't know this research. <laughs> right? Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I was cycling up Crystal Mountain with a couple of doctors here in the city. They are excellent doctors. And we're cycling away, and I'm telling them about the link between childhood trauma and neglect and cancer and heart disease, and as well as depression and bipolar disorder and all that sort of stuff. They had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the research is really clear that very few physicians have either heard of it, or if they've heard of it, very few physicians ask the questions, right? Because now you're opening up all these emotional issues and you have seven minutes and then you got to get the person out the door. Yeah. So that's why I think it's so crucial. And, you know, I think it's great that we have this platform so that the public starts knowing, wow, you know, I need to look at whether I've got psychological injuries. There's a multitude of things that I can do to, you know, help heal them. And unfortunately, the medical profession, you know, has very little awareness of this. And even if they're aware, they're totally not oriented around it. Right? right. And, you know, I haven't heard of anybody who said, you know, my physician sat me down, went through this list of all my childhood traumas <laughs> and said, okay, you have four childhood traumas. This triples your risk of heart disease. So we're going to do multiple things. We're going to watch your blood pressure. I'm going to recommend exercise. And how about you go see a psychologist who's helpful and deal with these psychological injuries because psychological injuries triple your risk of heart disease. But genetics, it only bumps it up 65%. Mm. So uh, that's why I think, you know, you ask what can be done. First is spread the awareness, you know, into the public. And they realize, man, I can start taking action like today, tomorrow. I can learn about my psychological injuries and I can start taking these steps to heal from them. And that in turn, that'll start shifting your body all the way down to the individual DNA. Shift gears a little bit. I interviewed Mike Levin about a year ago at Tufts University. And Michael has done very interesting work on what is a self. And, and you have gotten interested in that. Why don't you open that Pandora's box and, and tell us what you've learned about that? I read his paper on the computational boundaries of the self. I thought it was brilliant. And what he says in the paper is that when the cell or the organism is highly stressed, then the computational boundaries, kind of the perspective of the cell, it starts off being multicellular. I'm part of this tissue. I'm part of this organism. But if it's highly stressed, then it's sort of like, whoa, the environment is ultra-threatening. I better focus on me as an individual cell. And so it kind of detaches from the larger tissue in which it's embedded and it says, I got to focus on my survival as a cell. And so I got to start adapting. And so it starts chaotically rearranging its DNA and uh, shifting and trying to find what's a new adaptation to survive this hostile environment. So I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And 
then I thought, hang on a second, that sounds exactly like PTSD, right? Somebody is extremely threatened, their focus, you know, instead of being embedded in the matrix of relationships, they pull back, they isolate, you know, people with severe PTSD, they very frequently isolate, Mm -hmm. they're all alone, and they're focused on their survival, and they disconnect, and they pull away from, you know, the network of relationships. I'm going, wow, cells do this, and humans do this. So there's self-similarity, it's fractal. Then I thought, well, what if, you know, in PTSD, if you treat people with psychotherapy, you are sending the message that I hear your signals of distress. Yeah. Your distress is valid. You're also sending messages, I am calm. I'm not upset that you're telling me that, you know, you have homicidal thoughts. I'm calm. I'm, you know, here to work with you. And if there's a calm relationship, if there's a good sense of teamwork between the person with PTSD and the psychotherapist or the spouse, one of the strongest predictors of recovery from PTSD is, you know, good social connection, then the person's PTSD drops. My thought then is, well, what about if a cancer cell starts getting messages from the surrounding tissues that, okay, we hear that you are in distress, you're in fight or flight mode. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge that. We are calm, you know, we are healthy and we can support you. We can send nutrients, we can help take away the waste, you know, all those sorts of things. And so there actually should be communication between the cancerous cell and the surrounding tissue. And, you, you know, you should be able to look at you know, what is being communicated back and forth. And my hypothesis is, okay, if the cell goes to unicellularity when it's stressed, then if it's an environment that's supportive and safe, then it should be able to go from unicellularity back up to multicellularity Mm -hmm. and go, oh, I'm not all alone here, freaked out by this stressful environment. I'm surrounded by a supportive matrix of others cells slash selves and I can calm down. I don't have to keep on evolving madly to cope with a hostile environment because now the environment is good. Mm-hmm. And then the cancer will go into stasis, either slow its growth, grow into stasis, or even revert back to a normal cell, depending on its stage of progression, et cetera, et cetera. So Michael Levin said, you know, stress goes from multicellularity down to unicellularity. My hypothesis is that you can revert that and go from unicellularity back up to multicellularity and slow or stop the progression of the cancer. That sounds perfectly sensible. I like what you said about fractal, that all life is social at some fractal level. Bacteria, like maybe Perhaps most people might think of bacteria as just these little lone rangers that are floating around somewhere. No, they live in colonies and they have friends. I mean, I don't know how much they're actually friends, but as far as we can tell, like bacterial colonies, they segregate into you guys are doing this job and you guys are doing this job. And 
Some of them will, like the ones on the outside of the colony will die and protect, uh, make a protective ring to keep the ones on the inside from getting hurt by, by something. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous level. They're like these tiny little societies. And so, you know, a, a kidney cell is part of a kidney, just like, you know, you're a part of a province in Canada, right? It's like, you're, we're just zooming out a million X but it's the same basic patterns over and over and over again. And so it actually gets you thinking about, oh, okay. So people under stress, they retreat into their um, little tribes. Yeah, we've seen that happen during COVID for sure, right? And so all of that same patterning is happening at a cellular level. And so you want to do research now that can confirm or deny, well, can we get these cancers out of an SOS and back into out, like out of fight and flight back into normal, normal existence by doing certain things. Do I understand that? Yeah. And there's so much research to be done. Right. And so I linked up with Dr. Kim Bussey at Arizona state university as a result of this cancer and evolution symposium. We talked for like an hour and a half, and she said, wow, this is, you know, completely interesting perspective. And so she uh, goes off, does a literature review, and there hasn't been one study that looks at what happens when you soak cells in cortisol, right? Oh. Now, there has been studies that if you soak cells in adrenaline, you know, there, some of them turn cancerous and that sort of stuff, but nobody has ever thought to say, hey, what happens if we expose cells to chronic stress signals from chronic exposure to cortisol? Nearly every cell in the body has receptors for cortisol. Mm. And yet nobody's looked at what happens, you know? So we're starting this research to just start exploring the hypotheses and seeing if they're validated. And so, okay, you know, is it true that chronic exposure to stress signals, whether they're cortisol, adrenaline, or they might be electrical signals from Michael Levin's research. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Uh, we need to do the research. Does chronic exposure cause in the long-term uh, tumorigenesis? Does it cause cancer? And then we need to explore what are the signals between the cells? You know, how do the cells signal that they're in distress? How do they signal that they're calm? And there's so much to learn, you know, in terms of piecing together uh, the biology of this. Well, it's a very straightforward hypothesis, and it sounds like it's not too hard to test and amazing that it hasn't already been done. But, well, actually, I, this keeps happening to me. I keep bumping into things. I'm like, why isn't anybody researching this? Or, you know, you know, this guy really had a good start on this 20 years ago, and then he died, and nobody picked it up. I just keep finding these things. So, wow, that's that's fascinating. So, um, Eric, if people want to get in touch with you about this, or they want to find out more about you, and by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you send me some of these references and stuff so we can put them in the show notes. But how should people find you and get a hold of you? One of the options available, I mentioned that people can assess their psychological injuries. Yeah. Right? Because your physician isn't assessing them. Nowhere in the entire healthcare system is it, or 
it's not routine, you know, to have these assessed. You go to a hospital, they're not going to ask you about childhood trauma. So I've got a website, psychologicalinjuryindex.com. And you can put that in the show notes and in the links. And people can just go there, click on the link, download it for free. And then they can, it just is a list for them to look at and go, oh, didn't happen, didn't happen. Yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. And, you know, just start evaluating what sort of psychological injuries did they experience. And that way they now have the knowledge to say, oh, you know, I had these psychological injuries in childhood. I had these ones in adulthood, you know, and I can start taking steps to heal those psychological injuries. Well, that's very good. And tell us the website again. Psychologicalinjuryindex.com. Very good. Well, Dr. Eric Kelker, thank you very much. Appreciate you putting this out there. Lots of work that needs to be done and, and lots of awareness that needs to happen. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for hosting me, Carrie. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.